0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Hey, I'm here with uh, Megan Kenyon. I'm Paul Axton, host here at uh, Forging Plowshares. And we are, Megan is an artist and we've been doing a series on art and this final installment at least for today maybe we'll get <laughs> Megan again uh, I want to talk about um, in other words we've talked a lot about the negative yeah we've talked okay here's what went wrong yeah and of course I think part of our job is to reconceptualize the, the role of the church and salvation and theology and incorporate uh, a full blown uh appreciation of human uh, artistry into that if you had to describe as an artist the ideal (laughs) community christian community yeah uh how would that what would that look like
0: i think for me almost more so than being an artist, but just being a Christian, the ideal Christian community is a group of people that actually practice what they say they believe, that they're informed about what it means to be a Christian. Um, and it's not just a head knowledge, that there is practical application of the things that they're learning about in the gospel. Um, even in the old Testament, in Paul's letters, um, in the Psalms and the Proverbs, like in any part of scripture, that they're finding ways to apply that practically in everyday life. Um, and that from that community is built. Um, I'm very blessed that I am, uh, my parents are Christian and they tried to build that community within just our, you know, immediate nuclear family where if we read something in scripture and it says, you know, do this or don't do that, or, or, you know, this is the better way. We try to find a way to make that work together as a family. So probably one of the most hilarious examples is there's a verse about if you do not work, neither shall you eat. My mom made that a very practical rule. And you had to, when you got up in the morning, you had to brush your teeth. You had to change your clothes, make your bed and help do the dishes before you could sit down and have a bowl of cereal. You know, that everybody kind of pitches in and helps each other. And that there's not one person doing all the work while everybody else gets to be lazy. Um, You know, it came out in other ways of, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, you're not allowed to just go and, you know, steal this toy from, you know, your sibling. Or you need to share, you know, that last bit of ice cream in the carton. You know, that you could just take all for yourself. That you're trying to think of someone else as more important than you. And Mm -hmm. not just thinking out for your own interest, that you're building kind of a community where people live together, they work together, they truly love each other, and they're taking the things that they know to be true about God and about what he wants for his people and finding practical ways to apply that in everyday life.
1: But as you've described your family to me before, it seems like every person in your family is an artist or craftsperson.
0: Yeah. It's kind of fun.
1: (laughs) And, and so you have a kind of natural built-in creativity. Yeah. In which each of you is fully expressing themselves in various mediums. Yeah. Des- describe, so your your brother is... A- so
0: I have a brother who's a gunsmith. Um, he's a classically trained gunsmith. He went to school for two years um, to be able to do what he does. Um, and he's very, very good at it. He knows things about guns that people that have used guns for years would never know whether it was hunting or even in the military or whatever. He just, he knows all the parts and the pieces. But more than that, like, he knows how to make it look beautiful and how to make it where it's functional, but it also, f- like, fits aesthetically. Um, and so
1: here, here you have, that what you have with someone like a, a gunsmith, he's a, a craftsman. Yeah. And there's no question that, you know if you're in a society where you need to shoot something yeah. to eat the uh, a value of the gunsmith his craft is immediately appreciated yeah by a community that desires to eat right <laughs> <laughs> and and so too that we could go through you know in medieval society that this was the entire economy of the guild yeah. That the merchants that they would have a particular values system because you know if you were in in uh, that maybe you uh, could sell something or yeah. if you were a, if you're a soldier in the soldier guild I guess that, <laughs> that being able to, to do karate or something <laughs> uh, in the actors guild being able to to express yourself and so. In this sort of economic system, there is an immediate valuation according to the values of the community. That is, it's an interactive thing. Yeah. Now, when I was a child, not a child, but a teenager, (laughs) my father looked at my abilities, thoroughly assessed them, (laughs) and decided that thinking was probably not... (laughs) Uh, my my forte. Oh no. <laughs> uh, and so he contacted Kansas State Farriers College and uh, a man named Bob Beckdolt who was the last full-time military or army horseshoer. Oh man. Retired had started this school. And he called it a college. Um, and so my father decided I should be a horseshoer, <laughs> uh, which didn't really work out very well. But <laughs> but but in a society uh, where people are riding horses, yeah, uh, or where it's a horsey community, yeah, uh, that somebody that can nail shoes onto the horse or make the horseshoe, there's an immediate, immediate value. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, that's the shift that you get in a capitalistic system that you go from that one's value or worth in a guild is according to the contributions they can make to the community. Yeah. And in a capitalistic system, of course, all that's undermined because no longer is it that you have something to contribute, but it's simply the capacity for you know making deals you know or or the the banker who can accumulate wealth or the market manager or people who are manipulating good at manipulating numbers and so there there is then I'm afraid in the church and and what I'm saying you know when, when people imagine utopia when I asked you in the beginning I said tell me what the perfect society would look like Yeah, and so you know when in in the various utopias, this is the thing that always comes out from the very you know first you know Thomas More's Utopia. Yeah, which means, as I understand it, no place (laughs) that that this is an unfound. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. But what will always be found, and this is you know everyone in More's Utopia would weave. They would sew, or they have to do one of these things. They would do carpentry. Uh, the The craft is privileged. Yeah. Now this is kind of bad news for someone like me, <laughs> uh, because I did. I'm not very crafty.
0: <laughs> they could be both good and bad.
1: <laughs> um, and it's almost like you know, in Wendell Berry's. I don't know if you've read much of Wendell Berry. A little bit. The the farmer, and that seems to be a, a common theme, yeah. the, the guy that can till the soil, that has practical agrarian ability. Yeah. And I think all that's good. I think yeah. all that's wonderful, right?
0: Yeah, it's all necessary.
1: Those are all necessary things. And it kind of gets at then what is lost in a community that is inadequate. Yeah. But I don't think we've said yet, though. In other words, all these utopian societies, where they in attempt, you know, they, they picture the perfect society. Of course, the actual, and, and the actual people that have instituted these, Oneida, the Oneida community, you know, maybe the, the we still use their silverware, you know. Yeah. The Oneida community is typical in the, they create this, large community of people, a communist society, a communal society, in which craft is put front and center. Uh, and, of course, eventually it all falls apart, even though we still buy their silverware. It's, it's all now a, 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 a you know a company. It's, yeah. it's now a corporation. If you do the Shakers, same yeah. thing. They produce really good furniture. Um, that all of these communities seem to privilege craft. Yeah. And uh, that in some way, that's a good thing, but it seems to in some way still fall short of uh, a a full appreciation, partly because these communities all have failed. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part not that they all have failed i suppose that they're um and so so the the idea i guess that i'm aiming at is that in a in a perfect utopian in in the church i mean yeah. isn't that what we're aiming at i mean that's all utopia is is that they're describing even marx's utopian yeah you know society is really a kind of uh take a, a, off of the church what we're aiming at is to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Yeah. And so, in some way, we want to fully appreciate everyone's contribution.
0: Yeah. But it makes me kind of think of Paul's um, description of what, you know, the church ought to look like. is like a body, you know, that not everybody can be a hand. Somebody's got to be an eye and somebody's got to be an ear and somebody's going to have to be... You know, the parts that aren't maybe as glorious, you know, um, that everybody has a job and has a place, but not all those places look the same, which means you can't achieve the kingdom of God just through capitalism where everybody is these like, you know, CEOs or whatever, you know grasping and striving towards monetary gain. Everyone
1: would want to run the show.
0: Right. That's not possible. You can't have that many people in charge and get anything done. Also, it's probably not a super Christian ethic to just be constantly focused on money and attaining wealth or attaining power whatever it might be. But then you also, on the same token, can't have an entire group of people that's just all crafts or tradesmen um, that are all kind of plying either multiple trades or maybe just one trade Um, It becomes a system that can't actually fund itself. And so, and it also doesn't fully account for people that, you know, like you said, maybe aren't as crafty or aren't as trade-minded, you know, that there needs to be people that, you know, doctors, there needs to be people that know things about the law, people that are more maybe academic and can teach, you know, that there are multiple jobs that need to be done in order to have a society that functions right, that provides for the people that live within it.
1: Um, And so everyone would be a contributing member in the church. But I guess the question is, what occupations could we do away with? What capacities do we in fact want to not develop?
0: I feel like, unfortunately... The church seems to want to do away with artists. It's changing slowly. you are seeing it a lot more often that churches have arts teams that aren't just a guy who can play guitar. And maybe an older lady that knows how to play the organ still. You know, that there's a more dynamic understanding of what the arts means. But it's still a very slow going kind of change. Because artists are seen as being kind of risky You know, they leave kind of strange lives. Um, They tend to walk the edges of a society or maybe multiple societies, which means they tend to have really strange ideas about how, you know, the world really is and how it works and how it functions. And it just tends to freak people out. And it's just easier if we say, you can come to church and sing the songs and listen to the sermon, but we prefer that you keep, you know, those talents and that lifestyle kind of to yourself.
1: But uh, there is no place. Yeah. Uh, And what is valued is someone with charisma, a kind of venal presentation that would be attractive. Yeah. But no substance necessarily. In fact, substance might get in the way.
0: Right. (laughs) I have an idea of who you might be talking about. (laughs) I think the other thing, uh, within my own personal experience, is... People the church seems to prize the most are people that are willing to write a Sunday school lesson or, you know, sit and lead a small group, which means there's not really any, those are necessary things. There needs to be people that are willing to invest in the lives of other people, especially young people and children, to be able to answer questions and present ideas and truths to them. However, a lot of times it looks like here, read these notes ask the kids these six questions after the large group time, and then we'll all have a snack and go home. So that even within the leader's life, maybe there's not any integration into, do you actually live this way? Do you actually practice what you preach? And then you're just presenting these kids a list of principles or some feel-good Bible stories. Does that actually impact how their lives are at school when they're coming up against, you know, violence and bullying, um, social media stuff? you know, problems at home Do these kids? Have they even been presented with a gospel that deals reality, you know, wise with the things that they're dealing with? And so those become the jobs the church seems to want, you know, people that are willing to just kind of almost mindlessly. And I say this like really negatively because I actually know several people that are fantastic leaders. Um, And I've been, you know, in many, many classes since I was a little tiny person. Um, with leaders that were passionate about their faith and were passionate about sharing their faith. But I've also been in classes with people that knew almost nothing about the Bible, and somehow were still in charge, and were still trying to present these stories. And they didn't even know how to find the book in the Bible, sometimes, much less pronounce some of the weird names that you find in the Bible. And I, as like a six- or seven-year-old, could do that. And it's very frustrating as a child to see the adults in your life that don't seem to really care about what it is they say you should care about. And I feel like that's where you've lost a lot of the young people in the churches. There's a disconnect of what it really means to be a Christian. And all they see is this kind of fake facade that we've created in modern America.
1: I know, I, I, the polls that I read is that, you know, why, do, why does, uh, you're a, of the millennial
0: yes. generation. Right in the middle of it,
1: <laughs> and so why did why is your generation, as I understand it, there's a huge departure from the church, and people are bored. Yes, they don't see God there. There's nothing of. There's no uh, addressing of the practical realities of life.
0: Yeah, I feel like um, one of the things I know we've talked about in some of your classes is kind of the the apophatic type of religion that you see in most mainline Christian churches and a lot of the non-denominational churches where you go in and you're supposed to have this experience of God, but behind that, there may not actually be anything. It might literally be just lights and smoke. Um, I was uh, reading an, an article by a guy who's, he's just written a book, and of course I can't remember the name, but he's a worship leader at a very large church, I think somewhere out on the West Coast. And he said his son asked him why they had these particular lights up on, you know, the stage at church. And he said, oh, it's so that you can see the fog machine better. You know, like when the (laughs) fog comes out. And as the words came out of his mouth, he realized, wait a minute. There's no practical biblical reason for why it has to be this color of lights up on the stage. And why the heck do we have a fog machine? This isn't a rock concert. And so kind of having that, I feel like so many kids... You know, they tried to appeal to my generation. I think the generation before us with the show. They tried to have this kind of big rock concert atmosphere to church to try to draw people in, try to make us look relevant, make us look like we're really cool, and you want to be a part compar- become a part of us. But there's nothing behind it, and it doesn't change anything. And so, um, and I don't know, because I I'd probably need to do some more research specifically into the millennial generation. But speaking from being a millennial, my personal ex- not so much personal experience, but fr- experience with friends that were a generation that was kind of abandoned. Most of my friends were latchkey kids. Both parents worked if they even were still married. So you had to let yourself in when you got home from school or you were in an after school program. Um, most of my friends, their parents got divorced. And so you lived with dad this week and mom this week or whatever, which leaves you feeling kind of abandoned. And there was such a push, um, I feel like, through kind of the 80s and 90s and, you know, maybe the first part of the 2000s to just attain wealth, to have the big fancy house in the subdivision, to have the fancy cars, to have all the toys, that it feels like that's all life is. You're going to grow up, get a job, get married, own a bunch of stuff that you don't have room for or the money for, and then retire and play golf. Like, that seems to be all the American life really is. The problem is my generation can't actually even afford that, much less do we really want it. And so we're looking for something real. You're looking for something authentic. You're looking for something more than lights in a fog machine on a Sunday morning. Or even if you don't have that kind of a setup, you're looking for more than, you know, the three songs you sing that kind of relate to the message and a nice prayer to cover the needs of the church and pass the basket. Mm -hmm. You know, there needs to be something more behind that. And I feel like that's why a lot of the millennials dropped out is because they couldn't find anything there. There wasn't anything of value there that would help them in their everyday lives. And so they left. And they're looking for it in all the wrong places now.
1: Which sort of gets into the, the other failed part of utopias. And and the, I'm wondering that uh, in, as, a, as a, a, a woman artist, <laughs> uh, that... Uh, in other words, you're coming at this through two disenfranchised groups.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: um, and, and your own education has not necessarily, uh, other than the radical aspect of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so the, okay. I, I'm, I'm curious, that, that do, how do those two things meld together? Uh, that, uh, that as a Christian woman artist,
0: it does make you feel like you're always kind of standing on the outside of the circle. Um, I feel like maybe that's just true of my life in general. I moved, well, my family moved. It wasn't just myself. Um, when I was 10 from Michigan to St. Louis and St. Louis is a very weird kind of community as a big city in that if you're not from there, you're not from there and you never really will be a part of there in a way. Um, especially if you don't really like the Cardinals or like Emo's Pizza or any of these other traditional St. Louis kind of things. And I don't really buy into that because I was 10 when we moved. I was mostly a Michigan kid. And so I've always felt kind of a little bit outside the circle there. And then I was homeschooled. And so that made me even weirder. And then I'm an artist. I'm a Christian. Being a Christian, you're always on the outside of a circle somehow, you know, you're supposed to be a peculiar people, people, there should be something different about you. You're never really supposed to fit in. And then on top of that, you just add in being a woman. And I currently go to a mainline denominational church that says women are not allowed to preach. Women are not technically allowed to teach, unless it's little kids, because somehow that's just okay. You know, the school I went to, even though it wasn't a mainline denomination, still, if you talk to individual professors, it's a little more divided. But the general feeling was we were here to train the men to preach. The women can be trained to do other things. And I feel like
1: they can serve the men.
0: Yeah, and
1: that's their their role is to be subordinate helpmates to the males in the the male leaders who will be the head, <laughs> which
0: may or may not be as biblical as it you know people would like to make it sound.
1: Oh, I think it's un, I think it's a pagan unbiblical. Oh yeah, I think it's oppressive. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it's destructive, and it's wasteful to a whole gender. Right. And I think it's part of the reason that a whole generation, is, in part, has also turned yeah. from the oppressive circumstance of the church.
0: And I feel like, and maybe this is an inappropriate use of this text, I would, you know, have to do further study, but when Jesus tells the disciples, you know, look at the harvest... You know, God is asking for laborers that are willing to go out and harvest. Like the fields are white. At no point does he say he's looking for men specifically, you know. And I feel like in our own day and age, there are so many people that need to hear the truth. They need to know that they were created with a purpose, that they were created by design with an intent, that there is hope in life, that will actually you know go past life that there's hope even in death that there's someone that loves you deeply and intimately and knows everything about you from literally the first moment that you were created when nobody would even have known that you were there people need to know that and there's nowhere in the bible that says only men are capable of delivering that message that women can be capable to and i also want to respect authority i feel like you know Paul says a lot about respecting authority. He says a lot about how to overthrow oppression, that it's not through this like violent uprising and, you know, trying to demand my rights in the face of everyone else. But it's also not this weak, passive, oh, that's fine. I'll just slip into the background and, you know, I don't want to cause trouble that it's finding creative ways to step up and say, no, I am valuable. I was created in the image of God just as much as this other person and, I have something that needs to be said, and the church needs to hear it. Whether or not they listen is up to them, but I should at least be given the opportunity. So in some cases, being an artist actually gives me a voice that I may not be able to find elsewhere in the church because I can say things through images and through painting that people will recognize, respond to, ask me questions about that if I tried to just get up on a Sunday morning and say, nobody would listen to me. And so, I don't know, it's kind of a weird, you know, you're always a little bit on the outside looking in, but that also maybe gives me a perspective, as long as I don't let myself get bitter about it, and don't be like, oh, it's those people over there, because then you're just recreating the same system that's put you in the position you're in. Um, But if you're able to kind of take a step back, learn how to forgive, and then ask for the discernment to see what's the problem in the system it's usually easier standing on the outside looking in to see, oh, this is where it got warped. This is why this is this way. What can we do to fix that? And so...
1: No, that's that's a very Kierkegaardian approach to, you know, he he was very much uh, a dissenter from Christendom and considered that all that were in, you know, his native Denmark though they claimed to be Christian, he said, there are no Christians in this land. <laughs> and yet, he, it's not clear. I'm, not, I'm still not clear, but other than the last few months of his life that he, but other than that, it seems like he, he continued to take communion. He gave communion meditations. He thought of himself as not a reformer, but as someone who would deepen and, and call to a, a different perspective. And so I, maybe that's kind of where I've arrived. That, um, yeah, I, I, it's maybe I'm too old. To... <laughs> but also, the, the, everybody just keeps starting over. Yeah. Oh, well, let's start a new denomination, or let's start a new. Or group. let's
0: start a new movement that's not a denomination, that is a denomination.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 And so it is um, a system that is in continual need of being called to, to be the church to, and that people are called to be Christians. And there may be a bit of ambiguity in there. You know, I saw, I've been preaching through Philemon. What if Philemon had said to his response to Paul's letter, well, that's good advice, Paul, but don't mess in my personal business, because Onesimus is the equivalent of my savings account. Yeah, he's the equivalent of the of the, the way that I make a living, and you're touching upon the very mode of my enriching myself. And so, Paul, thank you for the advice, but no thank. You. <laughs> what would be the spiritual status?
0: Of Philemon. I feel like... It would be definitely in question... You know... Do you really... Do you really love Jesus? Are you really his follower? Because you cannot say you believe the gospel to be true... And hold another person in slavery. It's just impossible. And so... To say to Paul... Thanks but no thanks... You're essentially saying, I don't really believe what I say I believe because I'm not really willing to do it.
1: And yet we have, I mean, this is Frederick Douglass' yeah. point about uh, the American slave system. And, and, and the, the strange situation in which the uh, black African slaves are calling their masters to the fullness of the gospel uh, that they've in some way perhaps received through the white man. Yeah. Yeah. Which maybe that's not the proper way of portraying it because in, in, in a sense there are, is a very different, and, and this is what I'm getting at with art, that in the black church there is a fullness of embodiment Yeah. that does not presume the values of slavery but with slavery I think capitalism Yeah. there's a rejection of that economy yeah and it seems like that's what's required I mean that you get a a new music you get I think a new art form yeah that arises in the black church because of this the the fullness of the humanity and embodiment that's there
0: yeah feel like kind of currently in culture it's been many many years coming if you start to do any study about christianity and the arts you realize it was guys like francis schaefer and there's a guy named hans rookmaker that were writing about this like in the 60s and the 70s and you're just now starting to see kind of the fruition of the work that they were doing to say there's a biblical reason for art that god needs artists um it makes me think of when they were building the tabernacle, originally, um, is it like an exodus or numbers or whatever, and God calls two different men to help build the tabernacle. And he has very specific instructions for how it's supposed to be done. But it's all design, you know, that they're supposed to have the menorah would have these types of blossoms on them that are representative of Aaron's staff. And that, you know, these specific colors were supposed to be used with these dyes that When you go into the tabernacle, you have an experience of God that's multi-sensory. So it's taking a full account of you as a person, that you're hearing, you know, the words that are spoken and the songs that are sung. You're smelling the incense. You're seeing all of the beautiful things that have been made to worship God. And then hopefully, in the same time, you're speaking out the truth. You're saying the words of the law that were required, you know, when you would go in for sacrifices and things like that. So there's that kind of understanding that's being brought back to art and to the church with people that are been doing a lot of work and a lot of study and practicing their, their particular art form to be as good at it as they can possibly be to say there is a place in the church for art. It's very, very much needed that what the gospel says about the concept of beauty, that beauty is not just this you know facade you put over the realities of the world, but that instead beauty comes from Christ. And it's Christ crucified as much as it is Christ resurrected. You know, that beauty can endure suffering, that it can endure shame, but it has hope attached to it. That you don't have to get stuck in the ugliness. So you don't have to do the modern art where it's ugly and shocking and it's all about, you know, just almost disgusting the viewer with the reality of life. There's nothing else. But it's also not that kind of sentimental Thomas Kincaid or white Jesus with fluffy lambs, you know, that you can buy at a Christian bookstore that would put kind of a rosy sheen on life that really only applies to certain groups of people. But instead it's a type of art that like you said, kind of like with, you know, African-American churches, you know, that it has this kind of fully embodied, we're not denying that we've suffered. We're just saying we don't have to get stuck in the suffering, you know, that we're not with art. Now we can say things can be beautiful, but it cannot be false. And that's kind of, I think where the difference comes in. And the church really needs that. The church needs someone to come in and say, there has to be something behind the things that we do. That it cannot just be, I go into church, I sing these three songs, I have this feeling, this emotion of elation or joy or sadness or whatever it might be, and I mistake that for God. That just because you got goosebumps in church does not mean the Holy Spirit showed up. Because I've also gotten goosebumps watching TV and that wasn't necessarily, you know, just, you, you, have, you have a feeling it's an emotional response. It doesn't necessarily mean God was involved in it. You know, um, the arts have the chance to help engage other parts of the human body. You know, the things that you see, the things that you smell, the things that you can touch and taste. Um, I joke all the time that there should definitely, definitely be culinary arts teams at churches. You know, and maybe that's part of the fallout of going to a bigger church that tends to, like, order out food whenever they have events. You know, it's like, we could have Subway. Or we could have a culinary arts team that creates masterpieces of food so you're tasting the kingdom. Hmm. That the kingdom of God does not have to live on bread alone. You know, it lives on the words of God. You know, maybe the words of God involve pie. I don't know. (laughs) That would be kind of awesome. Um you know, that there is sound involved, the things that you hear, whether it's the sermon, that it be well crafted, that it be based in Scripture, that it be true, and that it also have a call to action. Or it could be songs, you know, the songs that you sing, that the words are true, that they're not just pointing either towards yourself or towards some vision of God that's not consistent with Scripture. You know, that there'd be something to see. It is so frustrating to go into Protestant churches that have a plain wooden cross maybe a baptistry, maybe a couple of flags and an altar with maybe flowers that week versus when you go into like a Greek Orthodox church or a Catholic church where they're ornately decorated. Um, I was in a Catholic church last year for a friend who became a priest and it was his first mass at his home church. And it's an old, old Catholic church in downtown St. Louis. And they had all kinds of just paintings everywhere and beautiful stained glass Um, The ceiling was painted with all the apostles just going down the whole length of the church. And at the front of the church, like just the altar itself was gorgeous. And it creates a whole different aesthetic for worship because you walk into a place that's beautiful and it's appealing and you know that great care was taken in what was done here. And it brings you into a place of wanting to worship a God that takes great care in the things that he's made and that he delights in things that are beautiful and things that are good and that you don't have to just be you know, sitting in a pew, staring at a plain wooden cross. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but maybe we can do better than that. We can call people into something more than that to show them that Christianity is not just something we do on Sunday morning. It's something that is infused in every part of our everyday lives. And so, yeah, that would be the my vision of utopia within the church is that Christians actually do what they say that they believe and that it becomes something that happens You know, whether you're an engineer or an artist or a pastor or a nurse or just a stay-at-home mom, that whatever you're doing, whether in word or deed, is done with the glory of God.
1: Amen. (laughs) Thank you for that, man. You are welcome. Wonderful conversation.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website, at forgingplowshares.org.